Welcome to North Coast Church. Thanks for joining us as we continue in our series, Life or Death on the Book of John. Today, Pastor TJ McDaniel has an amazing message in John chapter four, The Woman at the Well. To prepare for today's message, we encourage you to go to our website, northcoastchurch.com and download the message notes, or you can use our North Coast Church app. Without further ado, here's TJ McDaniel. Hey, today we are continuing in our series called Death to Life. It's a study through the book of John, and we have arrived at chapter four of John. And I'm really excited because it's a famous passage, but more than that, it's one where we're going to get to see God putting his grace in our shame on display and everything that comes with that. But before we get into it, if you just read it, um, it just looks like a light, airy, fun story. And, and as we go through it, I think we'll see that there's so much more to that. And I'm excited to unpack it with you. So if you have your Bibles, turn to me to John chapter four, and we're going to start at verse four. Here's what it says. Now he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well it was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. So as my brain tries to engage with what this is, even, you know, I'm looking stuff up and it's like, okay, they're traveling. They're actually about 30 miles into a 70 mile journey here. And I started thinking about, you know, what are all the antics that go on on that road to where they're going? I just picture them in a line, it's hot, it's in the desert. You know, Peter's in the back and he's kicking the legs out from the disciple in front of him, complaining to Jesus from the back, like, are we there yet? I gotta go to the bathroom, you know? And then ultimately they arrive and the sixth hour is, is noon and we're told that they're tired. It's probably extremely hot based on the climate. This is, this is like your rest stop is a Walmart parking lot in Bakersfield. Like you are sweaty and gross and they sit down at the well. Well, Jesus sends his disciples to go get lunch. And even here, I picture Peter like, guys, listen, I saw Wendy's on the off-ramp. We have to go. They have four for fours. If you get the junior bacon cheeseburger, you can get the nuggets and, the, and they're like, Peter, we already told you we're not going that far. We're going to Subway. Anyway, that probably didn't happen, but you know what I mean. The, the point that we arrive at is his disciples are gone. Jesus is sitting at the well. And we could just be done with this sentence. It looks like kind Jesus befriends a sad woman, is nice to her, and that fixes her problems. Moral of the story, go be nice like Jesus. Woo! All right, guys, we can go to Olive Garden. This message is done, you know? But... Oh, I love this part. That's, that's us reading it through the lens as people who didn't know the culture, who, who weren't there. If you were a first century Jew hearing this story, which I guarantee you, you would have, this, as soon as this happened, this would have spread like wildfire to everyone in the area. That first century Jew would have been aghast, like not just astonished, they would have been appalled because you don't go to Samaria. What do you, what do you mean they went to Samaria? Like, okay, we have a map, let's do this. Here we go, pen. They're somewhere down here, right? And here's Samaria, and the place that Jesus is going is up here. Well, Samaria was such an issue that everybody knew at the time, you could go this way, and it would be a three days journey, maybe 70 miles in total. But that's not what you do, that's not even an option. You cross the Jordan over here, you add three days to your trip, you go all the way around, cross the Jordan again, and then you go there, because no one in their right mind would ever, 
ever go to Samaria. And you're like, well, why, TJ? Why not? Well, here, here's what they understood back then. And this is, this is nerd history, but I really think it's important to, to the points that are going to be emphasized in what God's trying to show us today. It goes back to 975 years before this moment. God in his goodness has given his chosen people, which didn't deserve to be chosen, by the way. He just poured out his love and said, I love you just because. And then he gives them the promised land. This spot is a gift from God. And he offers to be their leader, their guide, the one who protects them and takes care of them. And in their wickedness, they choose a king. They turn their backs on God. And, and ultimately, those kings, through political division and pride and violence, they break the nation of Israel, the promise of God, into two separate kingdoms. And we end up with the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom is significant because what, what we learn, and all this is in 2 Kings chapter 17, if you want to read more on this, but basically as it goes through king to king to king, it builds this progression. And of each king, it says, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And there's even this perpetuity happening that's building up where of each king, it's like, and he did worse things than the king before him. And one of these kings made Samaria the capital of the Northern Kingdom. And at the capital, they established a place of worship so the people wouldn't go down to the Southern Kingdom to where the real temple was and worship the one true God. Now instead, they set up idols and they encouraged their people to worship animals and they got involved in witchcraft and sorcery. The, the nation is going to hell in a handbasket. And come 721 BC, the Assyrians raid, they invade, they conquer, and they take captive everyone from the Samaria area, but not everyone, just the useful people, people capable of, of work who can be slaves, and they leave behind the undesirables. And then the Assyrians go a step further, and from five other nations that they've conquered, they bring them into the area, and now what used to be a place of God-fearing Jews who served the one true God you have people intermarrying different cultures, different religions. Now in every home, you're worshiping a plethora of gods through all of those despicable practices that come with it. And ultimately they get to a point where Israelites, God's chosen people, are sacrificing their own children in the form of fire to false gods. No, what first century Jews knew is that you don't go to Samaria. Feel this with me real quick. I, I wrote it down so I, don't, I can't mess it up. The Sumerians' lifestyle was disgusting. Their culture was hopeless. And all the while, they had convinced themselves that they were fine with God. Does that sound familiar? This is, this is a culture, a generation that should have just been completely written off. And God goes there. And even this, if a first century Jew heard, whoa, God's going to Samaria. Remember, in John chapter one, it's laid out that Jesus is the word become flesh, that he's, he's the logos, which if you remember from a few weeks back, he's the one who holds the universe together. He's the all-powerful, the almighty incarnation of God himself. And if that God is going to Samaria, well, then the first century Jew goes, <laughs> I know why he's going to Samaria. He's going to show up with lightning bolts in his hands and just start harpooning evil people. Just, he's going to smite these guys. And yet, that's not what he does. Instead, what we're about to see as the story unfolds is that the almighty God puts everything on hold to step down into the most wicked place to find the woman ostracized even from these people and in ridiculous, lavish care. He's essentially going to hold her hand and help her out of the shame that she has been stuck in for years. 
that's a story worth reading. So um, that brings us to verse nine. And remember, she's responding to the fact that Jesus just asked her for a drink of water. She says, it says, the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. And, and even this, a first century Jew would be like, oh, even, even the Samaritan woman gets it. Like this is, this is taboo. You don't go here. You know what they probably would have thought of Jesus? You have a Jewish rabbi taking 12 Jewish men into Samaria. You're going to ruin all of these men's reputation. You don't go there. And, and the fact that she's a woman and Jesus is a rabbi was huge too. See, the tradition at the time was that rabbis don't even interact with women. There's, we have uh, historical writings where rabbis in public wouldn't even address or talk to their wives, their sisters, their daughters for fear of any of that potentially looking inappropriate or flirtatious. There was even a group of rabbis that were called the bloodied and bruised rabbis because the second they saw a woman, they'd aggressively shoot their glance down to avoid even a passing glance feeling like something inappropriate. All these rules. And the reason they were called bloodied and bruised is because with their eyes down, they'd bump into stuff and get bloodied and bruised, which is crazy. And beyond that, this isn't just a rabbi with a woman. This is a socially outcast woman from the most evil group that these people are aware of. And we'll get there, but already we know that because if she's going to the well at the sixth hour, for them, this would have been immediately weird. That's not when you go to the well. It's the heat of the day. It's, you're going to end up sweating and it's going to feel like way more work than it needs to. The normal time that people would go to the well is, is dawn. Ladies would go, they would all get their water. And it was, a, it was a social hour where they would catch up, share about how their families are doing. And this is where the social aspect happens for this wicked nation. And she is disqualified from interacting with them. R relational bridges have been burned. She has to build the structure of her life around isolating and avoiding from coming into contact with other people because she's not allowed. So she's there at the sixth hour and all, Jesus and his disciples are breaking all the social etiquette rules. Jesus goes, yeah, I am. You know why? Because it's that important to me that I get my kindness to this woman and rescue her out of the shame that she's locked into. Let's keep going. This is uh, chapter 10. So she just said, I'm sorry, verse 10. She just said, wait, wait, wait. How, how are you even talking to me essentially, right? And Jesus answers her in verse 10. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to, you know, what the bosses say, highlight, underline, circle, living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? I love this because her thought process makes sense. She's like, here's this guy who's breaking all these social norms. This conversation isn't even supposed to be happening. He initially asked me for a drink of water. And now he's saying, actually, I would like to give you a drink of water. And she's like, from where? For you, you know, some secret spring or creek or whatever, right? She's kind of giving him the crazy test. Like I, <laughs> years back, I was in Hollywood and I was about to walk into a McDonald's and there was a man standing there a little bit too close and he like proclaims, I am the Lord. And then he hisses at me. <laughs> I wonder if she's trying to figure out, is this, is this what Jesus is like, you know? And as if, as if to resolve that, um, he gets very philosophical. Look at his answer. 
Verse 13, he says, it says, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. There's a chance she's being sarcastic, like, oh, okay, give me some of that water. But there's also a chance that she's going, listen, in the slight chance that you're not crazy and you do have access to something that's going to make my chores easier, make it so I don't have to come here all the time, make my life a little bit more convenient, great. Jesus, I will allow you to make my life a little bit more convenient. But they're having two separate conversations. I, I, I love this statement. It's simply that Jesus loves her too much to simply make her life more convenient. He wants to resolve the bigger issue, the thing that's going on in her heart that's capping her, that's isolating her, that's causing that shame. And so that's what he's talking about when he says living water. And we'll get into there, but it's worth saying living water wasn't a made up term for her. Like she would have been familiar with this because the well that she's uh, grabbing water from was dug probably through limestone, chalky, changing the consistency and the taste of the water. Maybe through mud, it would have been murky and had different things in it. And so for her, in a practical sense, she knows what living water is. It's flowing water. It's fresh water from a, from a creek or a spring. Great, I'll, I'll take the upgrade, right? But what's interesting is Jesus is saying this in a different context because there was also something else built into the Jewish system, which was this like ritualistic cleansing. If there was something that defiled you or made you unclean as a, as a devout Jew, what you would do is go into like a baptismal, they called it a mikvah. And it had to contain living water and you would go in one side, perform a washing ceremony. And when you came out the other side, you were ceremonially cleansed and purified. So they're not even talking about her shame yet. They're having two separate conversations and already Jesus is alluding to this thing that is gonna be the solution to her shame. He, wants, he doesn't wanna give her convenience. He wants to cleanse and purify the worst part of her life that's holding her back which is pretty awesome. And so if you have your notes, this is the first thing, um, three things that Jesus makes clear at the well as he walks her and us out of our shame is that Jesus alone satisfies. Jesus alone satisfies. I wanna read you a couple verses. Um, this is Ecclesiastes 3.11. It says, he has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Ecclesiastes 2.25 says, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? And then this one brings these ideas together. Jeremiah 2.13 says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. The reason this relates to our shame is because when we chase anything in this life, in this world, with the intent of that's gonna be the primary thing that I hang my hat on. My expectation is that that thing is gonna satisfy this thirst in my soul. It's gonna make me fulfilled or content. If I had that, if I did that, if I arrived at that, then I would be okay. Well, if that's not Jesus, you're just gonna end up empty with regret, pain, and shame. 
And so a good, kind God addresses where we draw our satisfaction from to say, listen, when you get your satisfaction, your ultimate satisfaction from anything other than Jesus, you know what follows shortly behind that? Shame. And if we're working on walking you out of that, you have to remember the only thing that's gonna satisfy that desire, that longing in your soul is Jesus. Anything else is a cheap imitation and it won't work. I, I wanna read you a couple quotes. These, these may be long, but they're so good. Just pretend, just pretend we're in the library and I'm reading to you, okay? Here we go. This is C.S. Lewis. I'm sorry, I'll read you. Uh, this is my favorite Bible commentator. His name is William Barclay. He says, in every man there is this nameless, unsatisfied longing, this vague discontent, this something lacking, this frustration, this longing which sometimes makes a man squirm his shoulders. He doesn't know why. We cannot find happiness outside of the things that the human situation has to offer. That's crazy. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that doesn't prove the universe to be a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. Jesus in his mercy would remind us to keep us from shame. Only he satisfies. Um, I, I won't spend too much more time on this. This could be a sermon in and of itself, but you know, so far we've been talking about this in terms of Jesus' kindness and he's redirecting us, but the implications of drawing our satisfaction from somewhere else are, are very dire. The, the, those followed out all the way um, are very dark at their pinnacle. I think about uh, recently there was a DJ, his name was Avisi, or that's, that's what he went by. And, you know, he was a handsome, talented young man and he's very passionate about music. And so his goal wasn't just to be good at music, it was to be the best at his field. Um, and if he had to hung, hang his hat on, this is gonna satisfy me. This is gonna be the ultimate thing that thirsts the quench, I'm sorry, that quenches the thirst of my soul. Well, that's gonna be, I wanna travel, I wanna make a ton of money, I wanna be with any woman that I can. I want substance, I want pleasure, I want drugs, I want, and he accomplished all of those to the nth degree without any restraint. He's traveling the world. He is the most prolific in his music genre. Women are throwing themselves at him, he's doing drugs every night. And what's fascinating in the worst way is that over time, he starts saying dark things in interviews to the, to the extent of, you know, I'm the most popular person in the room and yet I feel cripplingly alone. His, his parents start talking about conversations that they have where they're watching the decline of their son, that he's becoming more and more depressed, that he's saying existential things like he feels empty. Ultimately, he begins drinking so much just to try to pacify this, this feeling of discontentment that he does irreparable damage to his organs and ultimately, he takes his own life. Why? because he was 100% sure this is where my satisfaction will come from. I hang my hat on it. And when he got to the top of that mountain, he was completely empty with nothing but regret and shame. And it didn't do what he thought it would do. Jesus in his kindness goes, I wanna save you from that. Don't even go down the road that comes with shame. Get your living water from me. All right, let's keep going. Um, 
if we move on, we find ourselves in John chapter, uh, verse 16 through 18. Look at this. We're about to see specifically what her shame is. Here we go. He told her, go tell your husband, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. There's a lot of different ways you could read this. It, 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 on the face of it, it looks like this is a very juxtaposed, abrasive thing for Jesus to say. They've been having this nice conversation. They're about to sync up in their understanding. And he goes, look how terrible you are. Here's all your sin. Why is he doing this? Is, he, is, is the process to being freed from shame being humiliated? Is it having our nose rubbed in the worst parts of us and, and we have to go through that as a religious obligation in order to experience freedom? Obviously the answer is no. Um, but the second thing in your notes there is this. Jesus confronts our sin so that he can heal us from, heal us from it. Jesus confronts our sin so that he can heal us from it. He understands that shame is what's suffocating this woman. Who knows how many years, now that we know what her thing is, that she has been living like this, designing her life to avoid people to be stuck in this lowly, small position, not free, but suffocated in her shame. And he goes, we have to confront it and expose it so that I can get you past it to something better, to the design that I have for your life, for my glory and your blessing. Let's do this, but it requires confronting the issue. In, in Mark chapter two, verse 19, Jesus basically gives this analogy where he's like a physician. He's a doctor. And that's perfect because what does a doctor do? When they find the thing that makes you sick, that's, that's ruining your health, that's killing you, they don't avoid it. They don't allow it to linger. They're excited that they found it. Great. Now we can treat it, right? I have a friend who I used to do uh, youth ministry with years back. His name's Brock. And we were getting ready to go to winter camp. And he called me up and he was like, hey, I'm really not feeling good. I can't go. And, and we were bummed. And he started describing the symptoms to me. And he's like, I need to stay home because I've never experienced this before. He's getting nauseous and uh, lightheaded and dizzy. But the weirdest one was that he was getting this pressure in his abdomen and it was increasing. He's like, I think I just need to lay down and stay home. And so that all that day, the pressure increased and increased and increased and his symptoms got worse and he was feeling terrible. And he woke up the next morning and the pressure was gone. And he was like, oh, I'm healed. This is great. And so he went back to work. He spent that week doing all the things he would normally do, chores at home, all that kind of stuff. But each day he started getting increasingly jaundiced. Now he's getting so lightheaded that he couldn't keep his balance when he was standing up. Nausea was causing him to throw up. And it got to a point where his wife was like, okay, enough. This is ridiculous. Get in the car. We're going to the emergency room. When they arrive, what they find out is that that pressure increasing in his abdomen was his appendix. And the pressure went away because his appendix ruptured and everything that was inside his appendix now was spilt out to float freely in his body cavity. People die from this. Like he had grown all the way septic and that surgeon, what they had to do was cut him open for real, take all of his internal organs out expose them and put them on his chest, scrub them to clean them until they bled, clean out his body cavity and put them back in. 
Now that's crazy, but it perfectly illustrates this point, right? Why, why is the surgeon cut him open and expose his organs? It's not because the surgeon is mean, it's because the surgeon was saving his life. As Christians, we, we often view this the wrong way. When I was a youth pastor, I remember, you know, high school boys would be struggling with purity and there's always this drudgery of a conversation. Like, I know, accountability, I need to confess my sins, ugh, and it's just humiliation. No, 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 this is, this is the ticket to freedom. I can't say this authoritatively, but I wonder if Jesus was excited. Like, this is it. We're going to expose it. We're going to heal it. We're going to confront it. And look, wait until you experience what is on the other side of your shame. The, the cool thing in this for me, as we even apply in our relationships with each other, is what Jesus is demonstrating for us. This is, I, again, it's a soundbite that I didn't want to ruin. I wrote it down this way. Real love doesn't enable condone or minimize sin, it lovingly leans in to help deal with it. Let me say that again. Real love doesn't enable, condone, or minimize sin. It lovingly leans in to help deal with it. And this is so countercultural right now, right? Our culture says, no, no, no. The way that you love is you accept everybody, all the things that they're doing, even if to you it seems like they are lighting their life on fire. What we're supposed to say is, I love you, I accept you, I embrace it. If that's, if that's what happiness looks like for you, great. Jesus says the opposite. He says, if you truly care for someone, you're not gonna stray away from those conversations. You're not gonna be an enabling part that allows their sin to grow so big that it causes this much shame and they have to structure their life around it. No, we're gonna lean in and in the most loving way possible, we're gonna help them deal with it to get them to freedom on the other side of their shame. Um, and even this, it sounds like a biblical, you know, nerdy concept, like, okay, great, that's heady. But this for me is, is uh, I'm trying to figure out the non-weird way to say this. This happens in Ramona a lot, and I, and I love it. Here's what I mean. Um, with this topic in particular, right? Think about this lady. Her shame is she's been married and divorced five times. She's now in a relationship where they're not married. They're living together, probably sleeping together. It's sin. There's so many layers of complexity. I don't know if it's blended family stuff, all the stuff that makes, probably makes your heart numb and frustrated and you believe there's no hope for this. There's too many layers. We can't do it. <coughs> and now she's in a position where because they're not married, she can't even be used and discarded again because this thing's just temporary. This man hasn't even dignified her to say, let's plan for the future and make a life together. He's not committed to her at all. We should add at this point that, you know, I keep saying shame, but we should define it. We feel it, but to put words on it, shame is bigger than guilt. It's like a disease that covers us and chains, especially changes the way that we view ourselves. Time out. <coughs> Sorry. Um, it's bigger than guilt because in guilt we say, ah, I did something bad. But enough moments of guilt unresolved allow us to arrive at a position where now we feel shame and we go, no, it's not that I did something bad. It's that I am bad. I am unlovable and I am unworthy, right? And so all that to say, we've had multiple scenarios where people hear a message like this and they go, oh no, we're living together. We don't want to live in shame. We don't want to live in dysfunction. We... We need to bring this into obedience. What does that look like? And for some of them, it's counseling. For some of them, it's, it's one person moves out. For some of them, it's marriage. And I have to tell you, I've done a lot of this kind of weddings and these weddings are the absolute best. The celebration after, it's just so vivid to 
family to friends to the couple. Like you just walked out of shame. You went from shame and dysfunction to joy and health. And now this wedding reception is a perfect picture of that. Like this isn't just dry drudgery of things you're supposed to do as a Christian. It's a God looking at you and me and his kindness going, I wanna heal you from your shame. Look what's available on the other side. All right, let's keep moving. Here we go. Verse 19, I believe is where we are. He has just revealed to her that he knows the worst parts of her. Um, And I actually think this is very gracious. Who's the one who says all of her bad stuff? It's him. He's not forcing her to say it. This is actually the shortest part of the conversation. He's not sitting there going, now, why did you do that? How do you think this affected everybody around you? Look at the damage you've done. He knows she feels shame. He keeps it short. He graciously says it for her so that it's been identified and now they can move on. Um, All right, so verse 19, she says, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. You know a lot of stuff. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit, highlight circle underline, and truth for they are the kind of worshipers the father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. This feels really nerdy. There's a lot of cultural context. We won't, we won't get into all of it, but realize what's happening here. I, I think this woman isn't just changing the subject. She's not just going a different direction. Jesus has just identified her sin and she's essentially saying, great, you're right. What do I need to do with this? I, I should probably, I feel guilty. I should probably go do something religious, right? I'm supposed to go to that mountain and offer sacrifices. Is it that one or is it the other one that the Jews are talking about? And I love Jesus's response. He goes, no, that is not the best thing you can do. If you wanna be freed from your shame and the depths of your sin, it's not, this is the fill in the blank. It's not religion and ritual. God wants worshipers in spirit and in truth, not religion and ritual. And this doesn't just apply to new Christians. I think about myself as a, you know, I had been a long time Christian and when I would be in moments of shame, often I would go, well, I just need to try harder or I just need to feel guilty longer or, you know, I'm gonna go to first service and second service and Jesus immediately debunks that. That's not how it works. He doesn't want religion and ritual. He invites us into the thing that's actually gonna keep us connected in the stream, experiencing the living water, and it's worshiping in spirit and in truth. So let's just look at those real quick. What does it mean to worship in spirit? Well, contextually, Jesus is excited because he knows that when he dies on the cross, as he says in uh, John 16, verse seven, that when he ascends into heaven, he's gonna leave behind the counselor, the Holy Spirit. So right now, people don't have the Holy Spirit. They have to go to a location, to a place to do these sacrifices, but he's looking forward going, ugh, there's a time coming that's gonna be so much better where you don't have to go somewhere to worship in spirit, but the spirit is gonna be inside you and you can interact with the very spirit of God all the time. And this falls flat on us because it's the only thing we've we've known since whenever you've been a Christian, that's what we know. But this was something that Jesus was excitedly looking forward to and making known to her 
for her for the first time. And maybe the application for us in this is just remembering what the Spirit does. Through different verses in the Bible, we're told that the Spirit guides us, that when we don't know what to ask God for, that he prays on our behalf, that he, he convicts, that he illuminates the difference between right and wrong so that we might choose right better. And I, I just think simply, if we're gonna worship in spirit, we need to listen to the spirit. It's like Jesus is saying, look, I put a radar in you. It's like a shame radar. Don't do that. You can avoid the shame. You can live in my freedom. Just listen to it. And there's a whole dimmer switch principle that, that uh, Larry is famed for creating. Um, I, I don't have time to get into it, but basically the idea is that as we listen to the Holy Spirit more and more, the difference between right and wrong, the sensitivity of our conscience becomes illuminated and more sensitive, and it actually becomes clearer and easier to choose right as we worship in spirit. Okay, so then what does it mean to worship in truth? Well, I think there's two parts of this. The first one is, um, and I would write these down if I were you, to worship in truth, we have to worship in the truth of who we are. Worship in the truth of who we are. This, one of my favorite things about our church, this is true at the Ramona campus, and I think it's true probably at most campuses, um, is that I think it's really hard to pretend here. Uh, I don't see a lot of Christians at our church who are fake, who are pretending like they have it all together. Um, and, and I think when we show up candidly and honestly, authentically, whether that's in a moment of health or unhealth, willingness to ask for help, to, to be transparent, I'm, I'm worshiping in the truth of who I am. I mean, this is in a life group, this is the person who's not guarded, but they're going, here's what's going on, good, bad, and ugly. I'm, I'm willing to allow the Holy Spirit in our group to take this where he's gonna take it, whether that's advice from another person or supportive prayer or, you know, there's a, this, is, this again is a whole other sermon. Um, it's offering honest prayer requests. It's, it's not being fake and showing up in a pretense and guarded being real with who we are. The other half of that is worshiping in light of the truth of his word. And the reason that he's saying this to her is because the Samaritans, they picked and chose which parts of the Bible that they accepted as truth. They only believed that the first five books of the Bible were real. They rejected Psalms, wisdom literature, the, the minor prophets, just those first five books. And even with those first five books, they, they changed locations, they changed wording, they, they manipulated it to give permission and condone just the way that they were living their lifestyle. Jesus is going, you're just gonna end up right back in shame if you don't worship in truth. If you wanna stay out and live in perpetual freedom instead of the dysfunction of your sin cycle that you keep going in and out of, you have to worship in light of the truth of the Bible. Um, I was talking to Larry about this a couple days ago and he said a little soundbite that I thought was great. He said, a lot of times as Christians, we think because we're good with it, he's good with it. And that is not how it, how it works. We don't pick and choose. We don't manipulate the Bible. We don't justify our sin and try to change what verses mean. We read it. We take it as the word of God and we go, he knows better than I do. And if he says this is how he wants to guide me out of shame, then I simply obey. And even in this, there's, there's a graciousness from our God. I love that he calls us to obedience and not perfection. Right? Obedience doesn't mean you have to get it right all the time. In obedience, there's grace because even in my sin, I can, I can turn sin into obedience. The second that I've messed up, that I've, that I've stepped a foot back into that pond of shame, I can go, wait, this isn't what I wanna do. I'm gonna, I'm gonna choose not to continue to disobey. I'm gonna worship in light of the truth of his word. I'm gonna figure out what it means. And now instead of 
making up my own way, trying harder, feeling guilty for longer, going to more church services. I'm just gonna look. What does he say to do? In my experience, a lot of this is, you know, James 5, 16, 1 John 1, 9. I'll, I'll, I'll read these to you. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, maybe that applies to your source of shame. Maybe it doesn't, but the point is we go to the Bible, we worship in the truth of this word, and that's what determines how we respond to our shame, and it it keeps us bouncing off the top instead of diving into the depths of shame and getting stuck every time. Um, All right, let's keep going. Here we go. Sorry, I'm just making sure I got all the good stuff in there, okay? There's lots of good stuff in here. I think this is, this is what we land the plane with now. Um, look at verse 28. This is the, the last verse, or you know what? We didn't read verse 25. Let's start there. The woman said, after he's just told her, it's not about the spot, the religion, or the ritual, worshiping in spirit and in truth, she said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Verse 28, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Feel the progression here. She went from giving him the crazy test to saying, are you better than Jacob that founded our town? To saying, I can see you're a prophet. To now She's willing to interact with these people. She looks like she's on the backside of shame. She's saying, is this the Messiah? From this encounter with Jesus, there's growth. There's a point A to point B. You could put it this way too. Look at how she started. The disposition she started in was discarded, burdened, and isolated. And by the end of this encounter with Jesus, she's been chosen, freed, and she's fully known. This is what it looks like to be guided by God out of our shame. We remember that Jesus alone satisfies, that he confronts our sin so he can heal us from it. So we need to not be so angsty at the idea of it being exposed. We just trust him in humility. God can do a lot through honest humility. And God wants worshipers in spirit and in truth, not religion and ritual. Essentially, obey what you know. You don't have to know the whole Bible. You don't have to be a pro. What's the thing you know right now that the spirit is prompting you that you go, okay, I need to worship in the truth of his word. I'm gonna obey that, right? Um, my favorite Irish pastor, I have to say Irish pastor because if I just said my favorite pastor, Chris and Larry would get mad. Um, he said this that brings the whole thing home. If you remember in John chapter three, we looked at the story of Nicodemus and Chris Brown described him as like the top 70 of their society, right? He's a religious leader. He's well-respected. He's probably got wealth. Um, he's well-educated. He seems like the top of what it means to be good. And this is, this is what Alistair Begg said. He said, Nicodemus proves that no one is so good that they have no need of a savior. And the woman at the well proves that no one is so bad that they have no hope for a savior. And in that conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus said the famous words of John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The world from Nicodemus 
to the woman who the worst society that they knew of had outcast and disqualified and written off, even to her, for God so loved the world that he didn't just offer salvation, he moves heaven and earth, he breaks the barriers, he doesn't go around, right, on the map, he cuts straight through, he's willing to deal with all the ridicule, break all the social norms because this is how intently he pursues us to the specific practicality of guiding us lovingly out of our shame. That's a good God. And this applies in that span from Nicodemus to the woman at the well, this applies to everyone, including you and me. I don't know if you and your shame have ever allowed yourself to be the one who is writing you off, but Jesus doesn't. That means that if these things are true and I'm a Christian, I have no business not forgiving myself if Jesus has. This also applies to the people that we have written off. Jesus hasn't written them off. I, I would describe them this way, right? The people who maybe that we know that are currently still choosing sin, who hold wrong beliefs about God, maybe to the point of upsetting and frustrating you. The people who are intolerable and in our brain we go, they're too far gone. Jesus says, no, they're not. I wanna give you one last person from Ramona. Um, we had a, a young man show up. He's, well, he's a young dad and uh, six foot five, Viking, huge beard, for real, like Viking bloodline. And he was dishonorably discharged from the military. He got into drugs, I wanna say meth. And uh, he found a girlfriend and I think what they had in common was their use of drugs. And she had had two children from two other fathers that she was not married to. And they had come to church a couple times and ultimately one day she came walking up the steps of our office, sobbing, completely embarrassed. And she wasn't there even because I knew her super well, it was because she had nowhere to turn and she didn't know what to do. And she said, we're pregnant. This is a third child from a third dad. I don't know if they were clean yet or not. And she had heard about Jesus from before and she just decided, I'm just gonna go to church. And so they would come and they would hear messages like this and she would drag him along and he was not having fun. He was quiet and stoic, glaring sometimes. But over a few weeks of that, uh, they realized that they wanted to worship in truth, that they wanted to obey. And she said, I think we need to get married. And he was doing it just to honor her, but his heart wasn't really in it. And I remember there were about eight of us at this little wedding ceremony on the beach. She was there ready to say her vows. And as he and I were about to walk over, he pulled me aside and he said, this has been her thing the entire time. But I know what I deserve and God has been gracious and merciful with me. He didn't say in my shame, but that's what this is. And he said, I want this to be mine too. And right then and there, he prayed to accept Jesus. And then he went and he said his wedding vows. I can't imagine how many friends and family had written him off, but Jesus didn't. And he got a hold of his life. And the thing that Jesus did for the woman at the well back then, he's still alive and well and he's doing today. I can tell you he's doing it in Ramona. He's probably doing it at your campus or wherever you are too. Jesus loves going after the one who everyone has written off. And, and for us longtime Christians, don't let that just be an encouragement. Maybe it's an onus that we say, maybe he wants to do that with the one that I've written off. I heard one pastor say, if all of this is true about living water and the women at the well, then we have no business being a reservoir. We should be a river. 
if there's a spring that he's placed in us flowing over with living water, then we need to extend that to other people instead of writing them off. What if instead of disqualifying someone, we prayed for them? That, that person who's intolerable, who's stuck in their sin, who, who we just go, there's no way. What if we invited them to church? What if we sat down and gave them our time, you know, at, at, not at the well, a campfire or whatever, and just maybe it came up where we even lovingly helped them deal with their sin. What if we got to be a part of Jesus's transference of the living water where someone else was walked out of their shame? Actually, that's gonna be what comes from this woman. This story's not done. We're gonna save the rest of it for later. But I'd encourage you this week, maybe a small application is preferably choose one. Who's the person that you've written off that maybe you need to reconsider the way that you interact with, the way that you pray for them? because Jesus hasn't written them off. Let me pray. God, we love you. We thank you for today. We thank you for the way that you pursue us, that you move everything out of the way to walk us kindly out of our shame. God, we acknowledge that you are good, that you love us extravagantly. Would we not be reservoirs? Would we be people who passionately and excitedly accept your invitation to pass this living water on? We love you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. The woman at the well is an amazing story of how God sees us in the midst of our sin and he still chooses us. And if we choose him, we can end up having that unquenchable element of love and fulfillment that each and every one of us desire. What an amazing message. If this touched you and you would like to be able to have a prayer request prayed over, simply utilize our North Coast Church app and you can put in a prayer request right there utilizing the connection card or by going to northcoastchurch.com. We would love to be able to pray over those requests. And while you're there, fill out a connection card. You can also give online if you'd like to support the ministries of North Coast Church. Thank you so much. And we look forward to having you back next week.